Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. There is a huge competition to identify what is Joe Biden's number one priority. Some people will say it's rebuilding the shattered economy. Some people will say he's got to restore American democracy after the four years of Donald Trump. But number one of all the number one priorities, surely, is getting to grips with and defeating the coronavirus pandemic. The death toll in the United States is colossal, north of 400,000 people dead. And Joe Biden has to get that number and those infection rates down. And he also has to do it in a country where health is right at the centre of the culture wars, where even wearing a mask becomes a political statement. If he needs good advice, he could do a lot worse than consult our guest on the podcast this week. Laurie Garrett, a journalist and writer who is at that meeting point between science, politics and policy. She is a almost unique figure in having won the three P's of American journalism. She is the holder of a Polk Award, a Peabody Award and a Pulitzer Prize. My first question to her really was, for somebody like her who'd written a book 25 years ago called The Coming Plague, who really did see this coming, what was it like to watch it unfold in real time? Well, Jonathan, at this t- time last year, precisely, I had been probably a full month of uh, getting up at midnight New York time in order to monitor news from China through the middle of the night. By eight in the morning, every morning, I was trembling because it was obvious to me that what was unfolding in China was everything that we have feared and worried about, and it was in the form of a coronavirus, which really had not been high on the agenda. You know, we'd all been thinking of a super virulent influenza or something very similar. And as I saw the situation unfolding in China and realized that they were using the playbook of 2003, because I was there in China and in Hong Kong throughout the 2003 SARS epidemic. And I could see that the measures taken in 2003 were proving inadequate. And I kept saying and writing at the time, this time last year, you know, if this came to America, we would not be able to carry out these sorts of procedures. 
we are not a society that would allow for large-scale mandatory quarantine. And so the measures taken in China seemed not only uh, brutal and severe, but also signaled to me that if this was the kind of microorganism we were dealing with, those of us who lived in democracies were going to have a very hard time coming up with policies to control it. It's so interesting you, you saying that because in a way you were identifying there and fearing a kind of unreadiness in the democratic world for this kind of threat. And yet, in terms of the conventional measures of pandemic readiness, was your assumption that the United States, and, and I'm looking here at, you know, some some data that said actually, you know, back this time last year, uh, measuring preparedness says the United States was named as the country with the strongest measures in place. It came first on a league table and the United Kingdom, uh, ironically enough, as in the week when a, the death toll reached 100,000, it came second. And these were preparedness ratings in the, you know, United States, 83.5%, the UK, 77.9%. By conventional measures, weren't these countries meant to be actually very ready for a pandemic? I think one of the things that we all have to have a big collective soul searching about is precisely how we were viewing the threat of disease and of preparedness and surveillance. Because, you know, fundamentally, the entire sort of health security mechanism, as it was called under the Obama administration, or disease surveillance programs, as it was called under the George W. Bush administration, all of this was sort of predicated on the assumption that diseases arose in poor countries, over there, down there, and that, you know, if we could just assist those poor countries to set up their appropriate surveillance and response capacity, then we in the rich world wouldn't face the threat because it would be stifled at source in poor countries. And we really had plenty of reason to know already that this was a very incorrect view, a very sort of neo-colonial view of disease. Uh, and yet there it was, it was the dominant construct. And so even under the relatively progressive administration of, of Barack Obama, the health security effort flowed from the 2014 Ebola epidemic in West Africa into a kind of all out effort to bring developing countries up to speed in their capacity to recognize and respond to new diseases. And we weren't really critically looking at ourselves. So the sorts of measures and assessments that were put in place, which ranked the United States number one and the UK number two in preparedness, were really the sorts of preparedness we were encouraging developing countries to put in place. And in truth, what we now see is that most developing countries have done far better in dealing with this virus than have the wealthy countries, precisely because of this, I think, very arrogant and hubris-laden view that we all had of how diseases arose and who was ready and who wasn't ready and how do you define ready. I mentioned in the introduction that what makes you such a fascinating writer to read is that you do sit at that interface between politics 
science and policy. So, so just on this point, it was a talking point of Team Biden during the campaign that they had left this wonderful playbook for the uh, uh, in the Obama administration, which the Trump team had basically discarded, ignored, scrapped, and therefore they'd you know botched the whole thing from the start. I mean, what's your assessment of of how the Trump administration, before we get on to what Biden's going to do, of how the Trump administration handled or mishandled uh, the pandemic when it arose? And, you know, is the criticism that was levelled by the Biden campaign and by many, many others at the Trump administration, from your viewpoint, was it fair? I think if there are two political leaders that bear the lion's share of responsibility for this global nightmare. They are Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. On the Trump side, it was, you know, my good pal Xi Jinping says he's got it under control, so I'm gonna ignore this whole thing. Um, Meanwhile, of course, we were in year two of a very heated trade war. And while, you know, the two leaders might call each other their good friends, the truth is that it was really becoming a vitriolic, fight between the two nations with a lot of bad words said back and forth. And it wasn't long before the Trump administration just took that whole trade war vitriol and slid it right into how they talked about the Wuhan virus, the China virus, uh, the Kung flu, and all these other horrible slurs that were used by the president. And meanwhile, on his side, every mistake imaginable was made. And we are paying the price. I mean, the Biden people are coming in and finding that there's no real data to work with, that all these claims of testing and numbers and hospitalization data and everything is just a complete mess. They have no idea where exactly vaccines are in the supply chain or in the distribution chain, because again, uh, it's such sloppy data keeping and such a mess. I think we have to say that there's equal responsibility uh, with these two heads of state, the two most powerful nations on the planet, and that we can't really conquer the disease for the people of the world unless a bridge can be built between Beijing and Washington with a mutual commitment to a set of global strategies. That's fascinating. So in a way, the first order of business for the incoming, we're now the new president, President Biden, is to make that bridge and work with uh, Beijing to deal with this problem. But what you've also said there, which I think is fascinating, is we knew or it was often said that, you know, Joe Biden walked in to find there was no plan left from the uh, Trump administration. You're saying it's almost worse than that. There was some efforts, uh, some plans, but they are such a mess that his first order of business is actually to unpick what the uh, Trump people did and start from scratch. Is that right? I think the real challenge for the Biden people is going to be to get past the reactive mode to a really strategic mode. They are right now having to react every day to thousands, literally thousands of bits of information coming at the White House that are about the failures of the Trump administration, the legacy of what's been left, and how it's all unfolding nationwide. Uh, And each of these data points has to be responded to. It's very easy, very easy for any government to end up being locked in some sort of permanent reactive mode and to lose sight of an overarching strategic goal. And it's going to be a real challenge. I mean, even now we see that 
you know, he's only been in office about a week and already we've changed the goalposts on the entire vaccination effort uh, so that now he's negotiating for, you know, hundreds of millions additional doses of vaccine and massive changes in how all the vaccine is distributed. It's very important for everybody to understand, everybody listening to this to understand that a vaccine is not going to end the pandemic. We missed the opportunity to eradicate this virus. We had a moment, a window, several months ago, when the scale of the human epidemic was relatively small, and when the numbers of animal species infected were very small, and it was potentially possible to vaccine our way out of this catastrophe. But we're way past that now. Because we didn't keep the lid on it properly. G- g- given all of that, um, what you know, if you were sitting there in the Oval Office, and it's not bizarre to imagine somebody there might call you and ask for advice, but what what would be your advice for how, what they should do first? I mean, I know you've set out the the need for a strategy and the need to make relationships with China, but you know, they're they're in their earliest days. What do they need to do right now and to do first? Well, I think they are correct uh, from the U.S. side of things that. Uh, top priority has to be to getting vaccine in arms and uh, in as many American arms as possible, as quickly as possible. I think that that is correct. But and that that goal, incidentally, of of a hundred million uh, dose, you know, in vaccinations in a hundred days, is that a hundred million jabs in a hundred days? Is that plausible to you? Actually, we're already there. I mean, we're already at over nine hundred thousand daily, and it's inadequate. If you just do the math, then we're, it's going to take us a year nearly to vaccinate the whole American population at that pace. So we need to bring that up. Already the president adjusted it to 1.5 million a day. And uh, most of people viewing the situation who are experts in the area say it really needs to be over 2 million a day. Uh, and Is that doable? It's doable. Uh, It's doable in the sense that theoretically, yes, it can be done. Um, The problem in America that is not well appreciated by people outside the country, people who haven't lived here and been through the situation, how it's structured in America is our country has this deeply fragmented system of health. It is so fragmented that elements of the health system are in conflict with each other. They compete with each other. They denounce each other. They fight for the same resources and personnel. And it's not just that we have a public-private divide. We have a state versus locality divide, a state versus federal divide. Uh, Depending on the political flavor of a state, its entire construct for dealing with public health will be completely different from the state next door with a different political complexion. And so when you come in, as Joe Biden has, and try to bring order into this chaos, you have not just a monumental logistics challenge, but a fantastically complicated political challenge. And as you say, I mean, these are structural things that even a new president armed with majorities in the House and Senate, there's very little he can do about anything you're describing, is there? No. And and. You know, one of the things on my second book, uh, which was called Betrayal of Trust, I traveled all over the world looking at how public health was 
constructed its history and its current operation in different key parts of the planet and, you know, why it functioned that way and what happened when the system was stressed by an epidemic or some a natural disaster, what have you. So I looked at the old Soviet Union countries, at places with very complicated systems like India, I looked across the United States, many parts of the world. And what I found was that the U.S. system was the only one really of any size and significance on the planet that did not start out as a top-down system. So when you look across Europe, for example, almost every public health system start out as a royal system of health from the top down so that every locality ended up having roughly the same uh, outlines and designs of their systems. And it's all quite centralized at the top. We have the exact opposite. Our entire system of health arose at the local level. It arose from the very earliest days, in fact, before the American Revolution, on an almost neighborhood basis, a, a city basis, a state and county basis. And the rules vary even within states from one county to the next. And what has flowed from that is that almost all the, the essential rules of the road are decided at the local level. Let us shine the lights in the darkness along the sacred pool of reflection. Remember all whom we lost. In the last two weeks, we have heard more words of compassion, of grief, and of tribute from the federal government and its top representatives all the way to the president uh, than we've heard in the whole prior year from the Trump administration. And for the first time, we're getting a really genuine sense of uh, agony from the federal level about the racial distribution of that pain, about the disproportionate numbers who have suffered in the African-American, the Latino, and the immigrant communities, so that there's a sense that compassion extends with an understanding of racial inequities in our, in our country. So all of that is excellent. And I think it also is excellent that at the federal level, every key player on the, the sort of battlefield with COVID, from the, the new head of the CDC to the White House itself, we're hearing very clear messaging that says, we will not lie to you. And we will understand that we're all on an arc together to try and come up with full understanding of this virus and conquer it. Uh, and so there is a kind of clear sense that we're going to get some truth for once. Now, does that translate at the local level, at the individual level into appropriate action? Not yet. I think we're a long ways from that. So we put so much energy into being concerned about the anti-vaccine movement, about disinformation, about people being reluctant to get vaccinated. Uh, and certainly that is a phenomenon. But what we're seeing now is just the opposite. Demand far exceeds supply. So the challenge now is the opposite of what government had been gearing up for. It is, can you deal with supply? 
what about the fact that Joe Biden just is a new and very different person from Donald Trump in terms of relationships? And in a way, we've talked about his relationship with the American people and modeling mask wearing and so on. But for example, just take two relationships. Anthony Fauci looked like a man liberated with, you know, that now he could speak honestly, he said at the podium, rather than worrying about the audience of one Donald Trump who might shut him up. And then, you know, far off, much further away, the world health organization, Joe Biden signing an executive order to rejoin the WHO after Donald Trump broke from it. Those sorts of relationships, how big a concrete, tangible difference do they make in terms of actually wrestling with this pandemic? Well, I think one of the things that uh, needs to be appreciated is that Joe Biden has been a familiar face uh, on the American political stage now for decades. And he has surrounded himself with many of the same people who he served with as vice president in the Obama administration. So there's even more familiarity. So Tony Fauci knows Joe Biden. They worked together when Biden was vice president and were trying to tackle the uh, Ebola epidemic in 2014 and the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 2009, which occurred when Obama was only three months in office. And many of the people that you're referring to, whether they're at the World Health Organization level or they're at the level of local state health departments and so on, have a history of working either directly with Joe Biden or with people that he has brought on board. So there is a certain sense that a kind of continuity has happened. I would almost venture to say that this is not so much a new administration as a restoration of the form of administration we'd had for decades before Trump came in. You won prizes for writing a book uh, uh, sort of a generation ago called The Coming Plague. We're not through this one yet, but what do you think Joe Biden and leaders around the world need to do to prepare for the next one? Well, hopefully... They will all look at this catastrophe and the what Larry Summers and Gordon Brown have predicted will be a $16 trillion loss to the global economy. And they will ask themselves, how can we change the whole scale of what we talk about when we say we want to prevent future pandemics? You know, we've been operating on these shoestring budgets with tiny, tiny, not terribly well-designed multilateral institutions trying, whether it's WHO or Gavi or the Gates Foundation, whatever you turn to, Welcome Trust, they've all been trying to do the right thing on shoestring budgets and without really the proper level of organization. And we've also been doing all of this with still a fair amount of kind of neocolonial mentality that continued to imagine this north-south divide where the Northern Hemisphere wealthy nations had one level of risk and the rest of the world had another level of risk. And we were acting as benevolent overlords, you know, passing on our wisdom and dribbles of money to help the Southern Hemisphere. I hope that if anything, any lesson comes out of this pandemic, it is that that construct is old, dead, wrong, get rid of it. It's just not the way the microbial world works or risk arises from the microbial world. Um, And the second thing I think is that 
we're increasingly seeing calls to understand the connection between climate change and disease emergence and to recognize the overlapping interests of the two great challenges of our 21st century. And both of them come up against a similar difficulty that goes to the core of global trade and capitalism in trying to understand how resources are appropriately diverted or utilized and that may not go straight to the core of a profit motive that really concretely studies how climate change is, is altering this pattern of disease emergence and flow in the microbial world and creates systems of genuine readiness and rapid response. And we just, we won't get there by simply relying on the same tired mechanisms of financial flow from the wealthy countries to the poor countries through these tired old post-World War II mechanisms of Bretton Woods and uh, the United Nations system. Laurie Garrett, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Before I go, I just want to let you know about a terrific new podcast series that The Guardian launched this week. It's called Reverberate. It's hosted by my colleague Chris Michael, and it looks at six incredible stories from around the world, moments when music shook history. The first episode's about a singer-songwriter from Worthing who inadvertently got caught up in the 2013 Hong Kong protests, inspiring protesters but infuriating the Chinese government. So do make sure to look out for Reverberate on Apple, Acast, The Guardian website, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please do look after yourselves, and thanks as ever for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.